Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. The author J. Courtney Sullivan has a knack for probing the interior lives of women. Her four best-selling novels include Commencement, Maine, The Engagements, and Saints for All Occasions. They tackle many different ideas, the marketing of engagement rings, the gift of religious devotion, the difficulty of families. But they all have one thing in common. The women in them seem utterly real and completely sympathetic, even when we're horrified by their choices. And that is also true of the women in Courtney Sullivan's new book, Friends and Strangers, tells the story of a Brooklyn journalist who finds herself living in a small college town just after she becomes a new mother. She's lonely, and the college student she pays to watch her baby becomes her confidant. Both women are vivid, compelling characters, and through them, the author probes much bigger ideas of class and privilege, of the hollowing out of America. And she joins us today to talk about the book in advance of her virtual event hosted by St. Louis County Library tonight. So, J. Courtney Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. I loved that. Thank you. Well, I have read all your books, and not just as preparation for this show. I have to say, if if readers are interested in reading about women and and understanding what modern women and and women in the 20th century are thinking about, um, I always recommend you. So it's such an honor to have you on this show. Thank Um, you. You've written so much about mothers, but this is the first novel you wrote after becoming one yourself. How did that shape your perspective or change your perspective? Yes, that's right. So actually, I started writing it when I was pregnant with my first child, my son. And um, I had had this moment several years ago where I was back at Smith College, where I went to college, and um, giving a reading from one of my books. And I ran into in the street um, this woman whose child I had taken care of my senior year, mm-hmm. and we had been very close. Um, and she, I think, had really kind of put me on the path to moving to New York and, you know, following my dream of becoming a writer. Um, we were very close, but it was one of those relationships that kind of, you know, fizzles out after you're no longer seeing each other every day for work or whatever it might be. So um, I saw her. I was standing at a crosswalk. She drove up in an SUV. It had been 10 years since we'd seen each other. I immediately knew who she was, but she had no idea who I was. And this moment, it kind of had this, like, shimmer around it that I knew there's something I'm going to write about, you know, about this relationship. But I didn't quite yet know how. So or why even. But seven years went by. I wrote Saints for All Occasions during that time. And then when I was pregnant with my son, I started writing this book because suddenly I had kind of been on both sides of the equation. I had been that babysitter, and I knew that I was soon to also be the mother. And I was going to have things to say about it and things to write about it, even though I wasn't yet really sure what they were. So I really wrote the Sam, the babysitter chapters, during my pregnancy. And then um, when I became a new mother, uh, the Elizabeth chapters kind of just flowed out of me because there was so much to write about. Wait, that's amazing. I think for anybody who's read this novel, and I don't want to give anything away, but you were able to incorporate that scene into the book in a way that I'm sure um, did not occur to you initially the the way you would end up using it. Exactly. Yes, exactly right. Yep. I love how hearing how real life ends up translating into literature. And this character, Sam, I'm sure most people assume that Elizabeth is the stand-in for you, but it sounds like in many ways, Sam, who is the babysitter, um, this is almost somebody where you drew even more on your life for her. 
Absolutely. So, Elizabeth, you know, I, I definitely drew on my own experiences of being a new mother when I was writing Elizabeth. Um, but Sam is much more like me um, as far as her biography goes. You know, she's she comes from a middle-class family. She's um, taking care of Elizabeth's child, and she's also taking care of other children um, who are born into very wealthy families, um, as Elizabeth's child is. And that was sort of what I did when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. I nannied um, in London for a year for a family with three boys under the age of two, which was crazy. And I, you know, I think I was even then, obviously, a, a writer's kind of sensibility, sort of just peering into these other people's worlds and um, and seeing how they lived versus sort of how I had grown up um, was something enlightening. And um, that aspect of Sam is very much, you know, my my life as well. And once again, it's interesting how that experience of taking care of those three young children in London, that ended up getting translated into a, a small part of this book. It, it feels like so much of your life is sort of bubbling up to the surface here um, in, in all these interesting ways um, and changing at, as you turn it into story. Is that generally true for your novels or is this more autobiographical than than many of the others? This one, I think, is probably the most autobiographical. You know, to some extent, um, pieces of my own life end up in all of my books, even if it's, you know, through a character who's a nun in 1950, you know, even if it's not someone who so clearly resembles me. Um, But certainly, you know, I think because I had, my children are 16 months apart, so I had a baby and then I had another baby, and I was really in that world of just taking care of them and, and, you know, tending to their needs. And when I went into the space of writing, when I had time to do that, um, it was exciting to sort of travel back in time to, you know, a younger version of myself, a version of myself who um, lived in London and, you know, was dating an inappropriately aged uh, DJ and all these things. So (laughs) a lot of it made its way into the book. And then we really ended up having to once my editor had read it, uh, to make changes so that Sam uh, could be more of a modern 21-year-old, because Mm -hmm. I was sort of writing Elizabeth now (laughs) and Sam um, in 2003, which is when I was 21. So we kind of had to bring them, you know, up to the same um, moment in time. But uh, so there was a lot more of that London stuff in early drafts that I had to get rid of, but I had so much fun writing it. That's so cool to hear. And and that completely makes sense. It, it had I had assumed that this book required a lot less research than some of your other books that are set back in, in different parts of the 20th century or have scenes that take place there. But I suppose even to properly imagine the life of a college student today, you probably had to do a lot of research on that. Absolutely. I have a cousin who's in her early 20s, and I kept um, texting her constantly and saying, you know, what, where would your friends go if they were, you know, going out on a Friday night? And, and what, would, what do they wear? Do you guys talk over Skype or do you talk over, you know, some other thing I haven't even heard of yet? And um, she was sort of like, are you writing a book about me? What's going on? But I, I was like, no, I just, I don't know what, you know, what it is to be 22 right now. So she was a real lifeline in that way. You know, one of the things I imagine you didn't set out to research, but it ended up playing such a pivotal role in this book, is this Facebook moms group where the Brooklyn moms are all talking about their kids, discussing their issues and, and getting in there. It seemed so vividly described and just so spot on for the moms groups that I'm in. Did you crib? some of the actual quotes from a mom's group that you're part of? 
you should ask. So I, yes, I um, was really amazed. That was one of the most amazing things to me about new motherhood um, was this fact that women really congregate in these online spaces now. And it can be really anything that um, bonds them. It can be, you know, a, a forum about beauty products or a forum about we all went to the same college or whatever it is. And people end up really getting deep and talking about very personal things. And I thought that was really fascinating. And, and the groups about being a mother are really the most intense of all, I think. And um, so a friend had added me to this group that was in, in Brooklyn where I lived. And the, um, the posts were quite amazing. And so I, I was really careful not to use anything um, that exactly that came from those posts. When my best friend read the book, she was like, this one's a little close to this other thing that really did happen in our mom's <laughs> group. So, like, I had to change some. There was one post um, where someone, this was my college uh, Facebook group, that um, someone had posted about how she was feeling all this guilt because she had eaten an Oreo and she was breastfeeding and, you know, she was really trying to keep it all organic. And and someone wrote this really amazing response and it ended with um you know doing multivariate regression analysis on the impact of that oreo is just a slippery slope and i really thought there was nothing funnier that i could come up with than that um so i actually wrote to the woman who made the comment and i asked her if i could put it in my book and she said yes so Um, you stole that that, line but you stole it with permission exactly exactly other than that Um, I don't want to get kicked out of those groups. They're very useful. You know, I think those groups, they tend to get kind of a bad rap, and there are parts of them that are really hilarious and kind of ridiculous. But what's really incredible about them to me is just that women are so generous um, sharing what they've learned. And, you know, as Elizabeth says in the book, someone with a child six weeks older than yours is basically a prophet. I mean, they know everything and you know nothing, you know? So it's just incredible to me that someone will go on and ask any question you can imagine about parenthood. And all these people will take time out of their own crazy day to tell them what they know. Yeah, and that's that's the good side of those groups. I think the bad side, which, again, you captured so perfectly, women will get on there and just tell perfect strangers that they've never even met in real life, I'm thinking about leaving my husband. And it's just, it's like a bomb has gone off in the group. And I think you did a great job of capturing both the the ridiculousness as well as then this this very earnest, um, you know, that, that helping moment that comes from those groups. Well, it is. It's fascinating because there's something about those groups that they feel... Um, they feel sort of, they feel private or they feel like a safe space to say these things, but they're really not. I mean, you're actually just putting that out to you don't even know who, you know, and I've certainly been in groups where, um, you know, someone posts something and says, this is super secret, don't tell anyone. And then a friend of mine says, oh, I work right next to her husband. He sits at the desk next to mine at work, you know, so that kind of thing where you're not necessarily aware of who's who's reading this and who's absorbing it. And there's a, then there's a whole secondary thing where, you know, people are taking a picture with their phone and texting it to their friend who's also in the group to talk about what they saw in the group. You know, it, it never ends. It's really, it's something. Yeah. And, and boy, what a dream for a novelist. Maybe not great for all the rest of us, but but perfect for this. And <laughs> uh, we're talking today to novelist J. Courtney Sullivan, and we're talking about her new book, um, which is Friends and Strangers. We actually have a caller, Courtney. Um, normally, I don't let our listeners get in on these author conversations because I enjoy them too much. But I think this caller is a big fan of yours and, and maybe has a really 
really good question here. So, um, Lindsay calling from Benton Park. Hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, you are right. I am definitely a big fan. Um, I just, even in the last six weeks, finished reading Saints for All Occasions and Maine. And um, I think, I'm, I'm so glad to be on, and um, I think one of the things that makes your writing so compelling is that every character is flawed to some degree. Many are very deeply flawed. And I guess my question is, how hard is it to hit that sweet spot where you have someone that you really want to hate, but then you humanize them so much more that the, the, the reader has empathy for them rather than just disgust? Lindsay, um, how do you thread that needle? Lindsay, that's a great question. Um, Courtney, w- what would you say to that? Lindsay, thank you so much for that question, and thank you for reading the books and for your kind words. That is so nice of you. Um, you know, I love that question because I really think I kind of had an epiphany when I was writing my second novel, Maine. Um, one of the, I always tend to write books with, uh, from multiple points of view, and Maine was no exception. And one of the points of view was uh, Anne Marie, who is this, the sort of sister-in-law in the family. She's the person we all know who just everything has to be perfect, perfect, perfect. You know, her children are perfect. Her house is perfect. Um, and we, it's the person we all kind of roll our eyes at and say, oh, my God, you know, okay, we get it. You're perfect. But at first I started writing her almost like a caricature, you know, almost the way that that person is perceived by others. But getting into her head and seeing how much she's like this duck floating along the surface and just furiously paddling under the water it gave me so much empathy for her. And I think that that is such a key part of why we read or write fiction to begin with. Um, it's this huge empathy builder because once you know what anyone, really anyone, is going through and why they're doing what they're doing, um, it's hard not to have empathy for them. And so that kind of led me on the path to writing more and more complicated characters um, similar to to her. And in getting inside of them and figuring out, you know, what's motivating this, because we all have um, our flaws and, and decisions we've made that we regret that have reverberations. And I think that is some of the most interesting stuff to dig into as a writer. Hmm. That's so interesting. And, and yeah, thank you again for that question, Lindsay. That was that was great. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't get to one of the ideas that is at, is at the center of this book. Or maybe I should say it's kind of a, a leitmotif that's sort of floating through the book. And then we realize, oh, this is the idea that, that we're kind of uh, talking about the whole time. And this comes out of a theory that Elizabeth's father-in-law has that he calls the hollow tree. Tell us what he means by that. Well, so George, Elizabeth's father-in-law in in the book, um, he, for many, many years, had uh, a a successful small business, which was a car service in the area where they live. And um, he was able to support his family with this business for 30 years. And when Uber came along, it just pretty much wiped him out. And over time, George himself has become an Uber driver because it's kind of his only option. But he's really struggling his wife is a teacher. He's watched her struggle as well, um, doing, you know, shooter drills at school and having to buy her own supplies for her classroom and all of this. And so George has become really obsessed with this idea of the hollow tree, which is his theory that 
in America, in the middle class, everything sort of looks as it once did, but there's nothing holding it up. There's these sort of systems at play, systems of wealth and power um, that are harming the individual. And yet so much emphasis is put on this idea of being self-made, of having you know your small business or whatever it is, that if you fail, uh, the onus is on you. You know, it's not... Um, let's look at the structural reasons why your business didn't sustain or why you've become addicted to opioids or whatever it is. It's this um, focus on the individual and not looking at the sort of social safety net that has kind of eroded over time. It's such a depressing theory, um, and yet you make such a good case for it. Is this something that you find you're personally subscribing to at, at this moment we're in? I do. I do. I mean, I think the the sort of um, depressing aspect of it, you're right, it is depressing. Uh, I think the other thing is, though, I guess the glimmer of hope in it is, you know, I've been very buoyed um, in the last few years by taking part in and witnessing the fact that individuals, volunteers, groups of just regular people are really kind of holding this country up Mm. in a lot of ways. And we may not be able to um, expect that someone is coming to save us. We may have to save ourselves in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, You know, that said, I, I think a lot, and I think this kind of exemplifies George in a way, you know, you think about our kind of GoFundMe culture and the idea that you know, we're all, if we can, we want to give $10, $50, $100 to someone who is, um, you know, undergoing cancer treatment or who a child who has a, you know, school lunch debt to pay off or whatever it is. And so that individual um, urge to do good and to help the other is really admirable. But at the same time, what about the fact that, you know, so many people cannot afford their own um, health care in this country or the fact that you know, school lunch debt even exists for children. I mean, these things, these bigger structural things need to be um, attacked as well and looked at and and figured out. It's interesting. It it feels like your novel is almost foreshadowing um, everything we've learned now as a society during this pandemic. And yet um, it's fascinating how at the end of the novel, you flash forward to 2025. And I'm sure when you were writing this, that didn't feel like a risky choice. But now that everything has changed so much in the past four months or so in America, do you ever find yourself wondering if if the ending for your characters would be dramatically changed just because so much has now um, changed in America. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the sort of central theme, I think, of all of my books that I come back to again and again is is the idea that the moment a woman is born will determine so much of who she's allowed to become. Hmm. And, you know, timing is really important. You know, uh, so when I was writing this book, I, I spoke to women who graduated the same year Sam does, which is 2015. But then this led to a larger conversation, actually in a Facebook group of alums of my college, um, about the fact that, you know, if you graduated in particular years, if you graduated in, I think it was 1982, 1990, 2008, you know, you were at a disadvantage professionally because of the economy you graduated into and that lingers for many years. That has reverberations over the course of your career. And so we're seeing that right now with COVID. You know, we're seeing these poor kids graduating 
into a very uncertain reality. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are professionals who've had jobs that are, are gone as well. And I think, as you said, I mean, a lot of people who had read the book early um, commented to me that they were thinking about the hollow tree a lot when uh, COVID began, because we saw very quickly that the structures in place were quite flimsy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, it's such an enjoyable read, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's it's entirely this very serious hollow tree, but it does force us to grapple with that issue, and I really hope people will, will read Friends and Strangers because I think it's a great way to both enjoy fiction but also grapple with reality. So, Jay Courtney Sullivan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.